Greetings all and welcome to Margin Call, the podcast and editorial meeting for Quest On Media. I'm your host, Russell Morse. Welcome everybody. Welcome to the show. Uh, it's good to be back with you, especially in these lonely, lonely days. We don't get to socialize and see each other. Um, we have a special guest today, Erica, who is an old friend of the show, an old friend of Quest On Media, uh, and a friend who goes back almost 20 years. Whoa. Uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> What's that? That's true. <laughs> it is true. Yeah. No, it is true. Uh, a contributor to Pacific News Service and New America Media, and now a contributor to Quest on Media. She's on the podcast today. She has a video up on the site talking about Women's History Month, uh, and she has a piece on the site talking about uh, nursing school, her experiences uh, in nursing school, student loans, and the prospect of being a healthcare professional in the age of COVID. Uh, All those are great pieces. You should go to the site and check them out. But we wanted to have her on the show today to go a little bit more in depth. So welcome, Erica. Thanks for being here. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Um, As good as can be expected, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's fair. Pretty good. Yeah. Anytime somebody says that, I'm happy to hear it. People say like, oh, you know, I'm good considering. Everybody has to throw that in there. Considering. Yeah. You know. Um, I thought these pieces were fantastic. Uh, again, I want to encourage our listeners to go on the site and check out the video because that's what brought us back in touch. You sat down in your backyard and filmed a video. Was that not your backyard? It looked like your backyard. No, it definitely it? was my backyard. Okay, <laughs> Nice. I mean, I, I, I appreciate that you went outside and, you know, it made me feel like I was outside for a minute. I mean, I'm in New York, so they don't even want us going in the backyard. So oh I, my was, God. I was very happy. I was like, oh, look, Erica's in the sunshine. It looks beautiful. There's a tree behind her. What's that like? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but that, uh, that video was about Women's History Month, which sadly is now over. And nobody knew that it was even happening because mm-hmm. it got completely overshadowed by a global pandemic. I don't know if that's um, a conspiracy of the patriarchy. But no matter how it works out, <laughs> I don't think we can blame the patriarchy for this one. Blame the, all right. OK, fair, I don't enough, think so. fair enough. I just wanted to throw it in there. Um, but you did uh, talk a lot about um, the wage gap and pay inequality. So I definitely want to talk to you about nursing, nursing school, healthcare professional, all that kind of stuff. But I do want to touch on some of the themes from that video. So what prompted you to step in your backyard and make a video uh, just as Women's History Month was closing out? Um, so a lot of people don't even realize that, um, equal pay day is a thing. And so I thought because it's the end of the month and because people don't realize what equal pay day is, um, essentially it's the day of the month where a woman would need to work until particularly a black woman would need to work until in order to make the same amount as a white male who started working and say, um, ended in January. So like you would need to work that much longer until March in order to make up that wage gap. Um, and I've, I've been seeing a lot of talk about like wage gaps and wage inequality and what does it all mean? And I just really wanted to kind of highlight the fact that, like, despite the fact that African-American women are really pushing forward and making some headway in terms of being really highly educated and um, getting more skills, there's still this huge gap and inequality that exists. And um, education, unfortunately, alone cannot fix it. It cannot fix that gap. 
And um, so, yeah, I mean, I just, I, it, that was on my mind. And on the other side of that, the other countercurrent was watching, as everyone I'm sure has seen um, on the news and, and in, you know, Instagram feeds and, and videos of nurses who are just like super perplexed at how the shortage of, um, you know, supplies and, and face masks and basic protective equipment is not available to them. So I wanted to talk about a little bit about that and about what that means for me as a nursing student and what types of risks I may be faced with um, in the wake of Gavin Newsom essentially asking for nursing students, whether they're um, receive whether they've received their license or not to start working. And so, yeah, all of those things kind of coalesce together in that video, but there's a tangential line and they all, it all kind of runs, runs together in a way. Yeah. Is has this been something that you've paid attention to this wage gap? Is this something that you've noticed just as an adult, when you're thinking about your own professional career, like how, how have you experienced it? How has it become, you know, had a specific impact on your life? So I think it started to dawn on me after, like most students, it usually starts to make sense as you're living in it. And for me, I, I realized that like getting a BA didn't really change anything in my life. And I, I started doing some research and I started figuring out that like for a lot of black students, um, getting a BA actually puts you more in debt and it doesn't raise your pace enough to, to have, have you be pulled out of the debt that you're under from getting a BA. And it's not like that for other um, groups, for other ethnic groups, um, for white and Asian ethnic groups. When you, you know, look at across the line, the Brookings Institute has a really good, um, there's like an ethnographic where they show their trajectory over 10 years. And a lot of African-American students still have the same debt, only more debt once, you know, when you, a cost for our account for, um, interest, they still have the debt and then they have more debt on top of that. And so looking at that information and thinking about graduate school in general was something that, you know, I had to be really specific and, and make sure that nursing was something that I wanted to do because I knew that I was going to incur a lot more debt. I went from having about $32,000 worth of debt to now, $142,000 worth of debt. So um, I needed to make sure that, you know, I felt confident that that being in this field was something that I felt like I could make the debt um, back, you know, in a reasonable amount of time and not be victim or fall victim to, um, you know, the statistics that say that for African-American students, we're five times more likely to default on our loans. And, you know, that's as an undergraduate, but as a graduate, we're still in the majority in terms of defaulting on our loans. So taking all of those things into consideration, yeah, it's something that I spend a lot of time looking at and, and following trends. And sadly, I wish I could say that it's gotten better. It hasn't, it's actually gotten worse. 
um, I think I'm going to tell my age a little bit here, but I started um, as an undergrad way back in the 90s, in 98. And um, when you look at, you know, folks who got their degrees around the 2000s and then went on to, you know, work a career or whatever, those folks who got their degrees like back in the early 2000s, as opposed to people who got their degrees after 2005, when um, Pell Grants started going away and federal funding started going away, students are having to pay a larger portion of their um, way into school, as opposed to when I first started as an undergraduate, uh, there was a, just a lot more money was available. So not only do you have, you have this confluence because like not only do you have students who are having to pay more and getting less from the federal and state, but you also have students who um, just don't have much to begin with having to ask themselves, well, is it even really worth it for me to, to do this? You know, so you have a whole bunch of students who can't, who just can't because they don't see a way to pay themselves out of the debt. So how much time passed between completing your undergrad and, and starting your graduate program and what was your professional life in that in between time? So, um, <laughs> I'm what you would call a super senior. Um, I, I did a whole bunch of stuff before I graduated from my undergrad, but I ended up graduating in 07 after having a baby and working in um, real estate for a little while and taking some time off. And I did a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so I graduated in 07 with a major in communications and a minor in sociology. And then I didn't go back to school. I think I started again in 2014. Yeah, I think I started again because I, I was taking prereqs at Contra Costa. So I think either 2014 or 2015. And it took me a little while because at that time um, I had just stopped working as a case manager in San Francisco for CYWD. And um, I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. So I, I took some time. Um, after my mom passed and I did some research and I started looking into nursing school and I started looking into like, how, what would it take for me to go to nursing school? And I figured out that it would take me about two years to get through all of the prerequisite courses that were needed. And mind you, my situation, a lot of people don't have the luxury to take time away and not be working. Like you need to have someone who's willing to take care of you. And at the time I was living with my grandmother and, you know, without that, with that, without that initial like investment of someone else taking care of me, I would not have been able to go to school. I would not have been able to go from a, a place of like working full time, as a case manager to not working at all and just, you know, getting the little bit of like scholarship money that they gave me, which was like nothing. So in your piece, you talk a little bit about, you know, your calling and your reasoning behind going to graduate school and becoming a nurse, specifically becoming a nurse practitioner. 
Um, some of that had to do with family members and, and health complications that you've seen and also what you call like having a seat at the table. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what informed that decision and, and also um, talk about, you know, what the role of a nurse practitioner is? Like what is what specifically that role is in, in the um, medical world? Sure. Um, OK, so a nurse practitioner is um a health provider. Um, we are kind of a hybrid between like a nurse, um, in that we can, you know, take care of you and, and make sure that, you know, you're getting your prescriptions or make sure that if you come in for a checkup, we can check up on you. Um, but essentially we're just under a family doctor. Right. So I can write prescriptions. I can um, diagnose uh, an illness or an ailment. I can do a lot of things that a doctor can do. The only difference between me and an MD is that essentially at the end of all of my um diagnostics, I have to have a doctor sign off um, on all of my prescription writing. Um, yeah. So that's, that's the biggest difference. Um, but a lot of people have nurse practitioners and as their primary care provider and they love them. And they, and I often hear people say that they really appreciate their nurse practitioners more because they feel like they are more invested in their long-term health. And whereas a doctor, not, and it's nothing against doctors and, and the MD professions, but like, um, their primary goal is to um, diagnose and to give you a diagnosis, a definitive diagnosis. Uh, so, yes, I am familiar with nurse practitioners because my primary care person for many, many years in probably the most challenging time of my life health wise uh, was a nurse practitioner. I still remember her name, Mona. She was my nurse practitioner. throughout. Was my that 20s. your early twants? Uh, yeah, I was, uh, you know, <laughs> I was going, let's, let's just say I was going through it. I was going through it and for a lot of different reasons. And I kept getting ear infections, right? Like I would come in cause I needed antibiotics for my ear infection. <laughs> what? What's funny about that? It was, it was eating. <laughs> I don't understand what's funny about that. I'm, I'm talking about my health, man. I'm divulging my, my. Why though? What's funny day. about having an ear infection? It's very painful. Okay. So now that you are able to keep yourselves calm, I would get ear infections regularly. Of course, you have to go in and get antibiotics for that. And finally, after like third or fourth time, I mean, at the time I was not taking care of myself. I wasn't eating well. I wasn't sleeping well. I was let's just say putting a lot of poisons in my body and I just had a lot going on, probably, you know, mental health stuff. And, uh, she was the one who said like, listen, you can come in every few months and I'll give you a prescription for the, um, antibiotics so that you can, you know, take care of your infection. But, you know, everybody has something that gives out first when you're not taking care of yourself, right? Your thing just happens to be your ears. She's like, but the real issue is you're not taking care of yourself. You're, you know, putting poisons in your body. You're not eating. You have like unaddressed mental health issues. Like I think what you should do is, you know, I'll get you a referral to meet with a mental health practitioner and start, 
you know, eating right and sleeping well. And she just like helped me to make a connection at the time that I think, as you're saying, like there's practitioners are much more or thought of, I think, as more holistic healthcare providers, right? And, and Mona definitely did that. Mona was thinking about the whole thing, even to the point that she was like getting frustrated with me because I wasn't, you know, doing what she asked and coming back again for antibiotics or whatever. Yeah, so man. I, We're I had a very, long term. I had a very good experience with Mona. I think a lot of doctors might have just been like, all right, here's your antibiotics, you know, good luck. But she was putting all the pieces together. And once I finally had was ready to hear that, you know, I made the appropriate changes in my life. But she was one of the people who really like prompted, I guess what you would say, a helpful intervention. You know, so she was I, I have great memories of her. Uh, and yeah, years and years, she put up with me through my twenties. Can you guys imagine somebody dealing with me throughout my whole twenties? You guys knew me when I was in my twenties. Can you imagine my healthcare provider having to give me advice during that time? <laughs> yes. Nope. Those shocked looks say it all. Um, but, but Eric, enough about me. <laughs> what do you guys think about me? <laughs> um, you mentioned in the piece, Erica, that there is an aspect, like part of your aspiration for being a nurse practitioner is, and you use this phrase, having a quote seat at the table, right? So can you talk a little bit about what that means? I, I get the sense that it relates to what you're talking about in terms of the wage gap and you're talking about women and you're talking about black women. What does that mean to you being a nurse practitioner? What is what is a seat at the table mean? Um, okay, so that for that, I would have to go back to um, my mom and my grandmother. So my mom and my grandmother both um, got late onset diabetes. Um, and my my mom's case was a little bit more challenging. I feel like my, my grandmother's case is a little more straightforward. Like she just took her meds. She knew what she needed to do. Um, and that was it. But my mom um, had a really hard time managing her diabetes and it wasn't for lack of trying. Like she was eating right. She was trying to do all of these things and she would go to her doctors and she would tell them that she was doing everything that they were asking and they would, every time say that she was lying to them. Like she just like, they would not believe her. And, um, you know, it, it really frustrated her, um, to the point where then she just got to a place where she was like, well, no one's listening to me anyway. I'm going to eat what I want. I'm going to do what I want. Cause they can't figure it out anyway. And that had a really, it had a lasting impact on me. It had a profound impact on me because, um, you know, uh, growing up, hearing and learning and seeing about all of the horrible, atrocious things that have happened to black women, um, you know, and black men in terms of our healthcare system to see experiments, um, the case of Henrietta Lacks. Um, I could go on and on and on, um, about different things that, you know, have happened under the gaze of medical care. I mean, right now, black women, who are um, pregnant are three to four times more likely to have complications postpartum than anyone else. And it's not because, you know, they are just completely unhealthy um, because when you take um, health into account, when you take um, money into account, when you take all of those things and you place people on the same level playing field, Black women are still more likely to have com postpartum complications and black babies are still more likely to have complications. And the end result is because of 
racism, systemic racism, um, bias on the on the hands and at the part of health providers. And for me, like seeing my mom and seeing my grandma go through it and and watching firsthand, knowing that th- that my mom was trying to do everything that she could and seeing the look of disbelief and the, the tones at which, you know, people would just pa- pass her off or say that, you know, she's just being quote unquote non-compliant, um, which is a term that gets used a lot in the health profession when people um, have this perception that a person isn't doing, um, isn't taking their meds, you know, or isn't doing the things that they have, uh, that they were prescribed to do. Um, so for me, it was like a culmination of, of seeing all of these things and, you know, being in case management and working with kids in the system and, and seeing all of these like little failures and wondering like, how can I best take the assets that I have and the skills that I have and the, the resources that I have and how can I use that for the greatest good. And so for me, this is, this is my way of doing it. Like by being a nurse practitioner, I absolutely can step into a situation where, you know, maybe other people have deemed this person as being non-compliant, but the reality is she just doesn't have the money to pay for whatever drug or whatever thing that you're asking her to do, or she doesn't have the transportation to get it. You know, so I think that, you know, there 100 percent has to be more practitioners of color because that's what's going to close those gaps in healthcare. And And I know there's a big push right now to get more people of color as the, you know, country becomes more brown. Um, I think they said they're still projecting like either it's 2050 or 2060 that, you know, the the in terms of California, but also um, in the United States, we're going to be majority people of color. So it only makes sense. Yeah. Um, I, I think what prompted this conversation, at least for us and, and the piece that you ended up writing, was obviously, you know, everything that's happening in the world right now is happening uh, in the shadow of COVID-19 and this global health pandemic. Uh, particularly for someone like you who is in school to become a nurse practitioner, to become a healthcare professional. Uh, And there's a special consideration. I want you to talk a little bit about it because I'm not in California. So New York's doing their own thing, but um, Gavin Newsom is trying to get, is this right? Nursing students um, can start practicing even before they they finish school or before they um, get their accreditation. Is that something that's available to you? Is that something you're considering now? Uh, what, tell me a little bit more about what Gavin Newsom is trying to is trying to offer people, and then you know let me know how that applies. To you. Sure. Well, um, so from what I understand, and again, these things are all just um, coming. I mean, as of this week, this this is new. But um, essentially, Gavin Newsom um, has formed a health, what's called the Health Corps, which will temporarily waive licensing restrictions um, for new nurses. So one of the biggest problems, and anyone who's in the nursing in nursing school um, will feel my pain. Um, so I'm actually supposed to sit for my boards and get my nursing license on May 1st. But because of the state of 
COVID-19 in California and in Northern California, they've just um, in, initiated or they've just reissued stay in place until May 5th. So I'm supposed to be taking this test in San Francisco on May 1st, but because we have this, you know, pandemic that's happening and there are a lot of students who have been turned away from testing centers because they are concerned about the health and the well-being of the students who are trying to take their tests. So in order to kind of work around that, the governor seeing that, you know, there's thousands of, of nursing students who can't get their license, um, provided that you, you know, have taken all your, your course recommend, recommended courses and have um, essentially gotten to the end of your licensure, um, you could be eligible for this um, health nursing corps. Um, which is looking to sign up approximately 50,000 new nurses to um, kind of help with some of the brunt of COVID-19 um, cases and not just the cases, but also to increase the workload so that it's not overtaxed for all of the healthcare providers who are trying to, so, you know, help with COVID-19. So that's, that's the state of it. Um, I think the roles were opened um, last week, late Wednesday night. And by Friday morning, over 35,000 people had signed up. Um, and there are a few people who um, are retired who are just saying, you know what, I'm going to get back in there and I'm going to help out because I know that this is a crisis and an epidemic situation. Um, and, for me, a lot of the reason why, you know, I wanted to put this in the in the in a video format is I wanted to show people in real time um, as a nursing student what I felt like some of my biggest caveats to 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 try to make a decision as to whether this was something that I wanted to do or not do were. And some of that has to do with, um, you know, a lot of students right now are really um, having a contentious fight with their with their school boards and with their you know um, folks who are responsible for tuitions. Uh, I was just looking today in I think Stanford and Berkeley and um, there's another um, CSU basically all issued out statements saying that that all of tuition and fees are going to stay the same, despite the fact that they're moving towards satellite education, which is completely unfair, you know? So here we're in this situation where there's a pandemic and there's a crisis and there's a call for folks to put themselves on the front lines and help. But at the same time, we can't even get administrators and educators to see that like students are not, um, you know, uh, they they don't live outside of, of this economy. You know what I mean? Like, we can't pay you what we don't have. Like, if we don't have jobs, if we don't have the ability to pay, like, how are we supposed to be able to pay for school? So one of the questions that I asked in the, in the video was, how am I to, um, you know, think about even putting myself on the front lines without having some kind of assurance that I would 
have someone to help me pay for my loans, which I feel like is a fair and valid, you know, question. Like, it's interesting that the way that this information was rolled out, there was no mention of, you know, like loan forgiveness for signing up for this program to help out and, and be on the front lines and help, you know, where help is needed most. That wasn't like a part of this. And, you know, students all over the the nation and all over um, this state are asking for educators to think hard about um what this next six months is going to look like, because why should I pay for a, you know, satellite education? I mean, how can I pay the same amount for a satellite education that I um, pay for an education where I'm getting hands-on experience, especially in a field like nursing, where in order for me to really adequately, you know, be effective, I need to be in the hospital. I need to be working with patients. And, you know, they're talking about next semester, we might not be able to do that. So, yeah, I don't know. But it just brings, all of these things are like bringing up a bunch of questions that nobody seems to quite have answers for yet. So that's why I made the video. So you're saying it would make more sense, at least for the state of California, if you're going to create this health court to offer some kind of relief for student debt, right? Right. I mean, there's already programs and and this is to say, you know, there are programs out there as long as, you know, Trump doesn't like take them all away, which is something that was on the table before this whole pandemic and this crisis started. Um, but loan forgiveness is, is, um, for first, you know, for people who are, um, first line, uh, responders. So firefighters, policemen, educators, health providers, there are programs out there, but they're getting harder and harder to tap into. And so I see this as a brilliant opportunity to offer, you know, students an opportunity to both help out and, and to get paid to help out, but also to help bridge that gap. Um, that economic divide that exists, that we all know exists, especially for folks who, um, people of color who have less money to begin with and are saddled with larger debt that often takes us longer to pay off and pay down. Like this is a great opportunity to help folks who really need the help. Well, there's another consideration, um, which is just, personal safety, right? Obviously, you'll be at a much higher risk. All healthcare providers are. Um, has that entered into your thinking just as a mother and as a person? You know, I, I know a lot of healthcare providers aren't able to see their families because they want to they don't want to get people in their own homes infected. So people are sleeping in the garage or sleeping at work. Has that been part of the decision for you or have you gotten that far in terms of thinking what, what you'd like to do next? Yeah, I mean, I I'll start by saying that since I uploaded that video, I decided to um, enroll in the health corps, um, and I got confirmation that my application was accepted. So I, it's absolutely real for me, and I have thought long and hard about like, oh, well, would I want to stay in like um, 
you know, like an efficiency suites until, you know, the bulk of the pandemic is, is managed. And what would that look like? Like, could I potentially get a stipend to do that? You know, like cause some, some places and I don't, you'll have to tell me, cause I feel like New York is kind of the epicenter of where a lot of that is happening, but like there are hotels and, 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 um, different places have, have, um, put up, put out, their um, hospitality and, and offering people places to stay for free. Um, but I, I absolutely feel like, again, this is something that when you're thinking about asking people to put themselves on the first line, these are these and it's an epidemic and it's something that is is contagious and it's spreadable, you know, it's something that folks can just get. Um, and doctors and nurses have gotten it. So I feel like that's another thing that it would be beneficial to offer um, for folks who are, are thinking about, you know, enrolling and joining. But for me, I, I absolutely would do it because I just feel like I know that nurses right now are working 24 seven. I have tons of friends who are nurses now and it's, it's crazy. It's really crazy. Like what they're being expected to do. And with the little amount that they have, nurses are putting on bandanas and putting themselves in really not safe situations and working at horrific hours. And, um, you know, instead of getting them the supplies that they need and figuring out ways to manage, um, the hourly workloads, you know, the people at the top are more concerned about making sure that nurses sign NDAs and, and have gag orders and, um, you know, don't talk about, you know, the inadequacies that exist um, at the bare minimum uh, for protective equipment and care. Yeah. That's so another that's, important point. Yeah. That's the real, I mean, I, and I'm, I'm pushing myself closer and closer to being in a situation where I am going to be faced with that as well. So it, it, it is not something that I take lightly. Um, but, but yeah, yet and still, I would still do it. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to encourage all of our listeners to go on the website and read Erica's piece and watch her video. I think this is a very important context. You know, I, uh, as Erica mentioned, I'm in New York, which is the epicenter, feels very much like the epicenter. And we, like a lot of people in the world, uh, are doing what we can to thank uh, people who are doing essential work, especially healthcare workers. So every night at seven o'clock, people hang out their window. I don't know if you guys have seen the videos, but it's pretty lit on my block. Like every person is hanging their head out the window, clapping their hands, banging pots and pans. It's like very, it's touching to see. Uh, and it is, uh, you know, a moment of community and reflection in a time when everybody is, is isolated. Um, and it's an important reminder about how essential these workers are. Uh, so I want to encourage everybody to go read her piece, wa uh, watch her video, which has been up there and getting a lot of attention from what I understand. A lot of people are watching the video. Erica has a lot of fans, as she should, um, <laughs> mostly for her insight and intellect. Um, but there are lots of different kind of fans on the website. <laughs> we had a conversation before the show about some commenters going on and um, uh, just saying hi. 
sometimes people just like to come on and say hi. That, that's what the internet does. Just mm-hmm. opens up some doors maybe that you don't want to be opened. <laughs> but for those of you with uh, good boundaries and a maturity level, check out this video. It's uh, a very important context and the piece is, is pretty powerful too. Erica, thank you so much for coming on. I think this is really, really crucial context that our listeners need to hear, that everybody needs to hear about all of these intersecting issues. Um, as you know, I work uh, in public defense and we work with our, you know, all my clients are in the criminal justice system. And I was explaining to someone all the complications that are emerging in my own job. And they said, yeah, this crisis is highlighting the inefficiency of all of our systems, right? So exactly. it's highlighting the inefficiency, inefficiency of our healthcare system, criminal justice, education, everything else. So as you guys know, I'm an eternal optimist and I would like to think that this is an opportunity for us to examine those symptoms or those systems, uh, identify what we can do to improve them. And I think e- even this conversation today is um, a pretty important step in that direction. So thank you, Erica, for being here. I thank appreciate you for it. having me. Um, thanks, as always, to our producer, Iming, who was very patient with us today, kept us on task uh, and I kept us on topic for the most part. Negative. That's what I mean. That's why I'm giving you a <laughs> shout out right now, because you, I, I was shocked. So many things happened. There's so many things that our listeners won't get to hear that because it took a while for us to get here. But Iming is going to do what she always does and work her magic and make us sound good. So. Property. You all, if, if you enjoyed this show, 99% of those things goes to email. <laughs> uh, so, yes, thanks to both of you for being here. Thanks, as always, to our listeners. And until next time, quest on, everybody. This episode of Quest On Media's Margin Call was produced in Richmond, California.